0: Amen. I, I love that song, and so I've been, I've been cranking it in my office every time uh, Aaron's in, making sure he hears it. So, uh, <laughs> people have come in and been like, what, "What is this? Like, this is way too loud in here." Um, <laughs> The, uh, well, it's good to see you guys this morning. Um, uh, I'm still alive. Uh, you guys heard I was sick last week. Randy, thank you for just opening the Word. It was a gr- I, we streamed it live, and so it was just a great sermon. So thank you for serving the church so well. And I joked at Essentials, but maybe it wasn't a joke, that after your sermon, people are probably praying that I wouldn't get better. Uh, the, uh, it's nothing but the best here at Creekside, so... Anyway, but it's good to see everybody here. If you don't know me, my name's Steve, and um, I am going to be have the privilege of speaking to you this morning from John chapter five. And so, if you if you if you have your Bibles open to the book of John, it's kind of in the new Te- it's in the New Testament, like the the last like quarter of the Bible. You'll see some big books if you're flipping Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. If you get to Acts, you've gone too far. Go back a little bit, and uh, we're in chapter five this morning. I'm going to be looking at verses one through twenty four. You know, as we've been going through John, what John's been like doing is he's been unfolding this portrait of Jesus Christ by looking at the, like just at at his life. And his goal in telling us about Jesus Christ is that we would believe in him, and that in believing we would have life in his name. And uh, I don't know, man. Uh, we, that we would have life in his name. And the, and the, the reality of it all is, is that when, the life that he's talking about isn't just like eternal life. We often think about like the, the news of the gospel as something that we believe today. We just struggle through life all along and that someday then we'll, we'll experience eternal life when we go to heaven. And that's not, that's not what the gospel message is about. The gospel message is about, like, knowing God, is about, like, being made right with God, about God restoring us and bringing substantial healing to us so that we can experience life today as we look forward to that day when we'll experience life in its fullness in the presence of Jesus Christ forever. The, the, the offer of eternal life is something that when you believe in Christ begins today, and it's as experience as we follow him and as we submit to him and as we, like, submit to his word and as we, like, grow in our understanding of everything that he's done for us. You know, I think one of the challenges for us, though, as Christians is oftentimes when you think about, about like, kind of, like, experiencing the life that Christ has for us, our focus is always on us. Like, uh, these are the things that I have to do. Like I need to, I need to make sure I'm in my, I'm reading my Bible, and I need to make sure I'm in prayer, and I need to make sure I'm like in corporate worship, and I'm in, I'm serving other people, and I'm being about God's purposes in this world, like, and all those things are true and good, and those things are the context in which we grow and experience life in this world. But if if we only think about like this life that's from ours, that's ours in Christ, in terms of what we do, like we're missing the point. Because, and I think what would happen is we just, like, all of those things then just become this, like, list of duties and things that we have to do um, as if the life is something that we're going to, like, achieve on our own strength. But the reality is is that this life that we have from Christ is from Christ. He's the one that, like, brings us life. He's the one that makes us new. And, and what our text is going to do this morning is just going to, it's going to focus on what God is doing in this world to bring life to us. And the person that experiences that is somebody that doesn't really cooperate with it at all. We just see Christ and, and the Father working like sovereignly to bring life to, to the undeserving and the broken and the weak. And so if you, um, so, so this, this morning's text is going to break out in three ways. first one is in uh, verses 1 through 8, that Jesus is the one that makes well. If you like to take notes, these are our points. Um, the second one is that Jesus is working in verses 9 through 18, and the third one is that Jesus deserves all honor in verses 19 through 24. You know? And before I begin reading um, in, in chapter 5 this morning, I do want to make one like technical comment. Um, and if you look down in verse 7 of chapter 5, there's this discussion between the sick man and Jesus, and we'll get to this. He says, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but when I am coming, another steps down before me. There's a statement in verse seven that, that you know, this event's going to unfold at the pool of Bethesda, and there's a statement in verse seven that talks about how, how the man's trying to get into the water um, when, the, when the water gets stirred up. If you look at a lot of your Bibles, most of your translations, if you look for verse four of chapter five, you won't find it. Anybody, uh, my translation has verse four, but it's bracketed by some other things. Like Most of your translations are going to skip from three to five. Do you guys see that? The reason why is that sometime later, um, sometime later, as people were copying the scriptures, like some scribe, probably well-intentioned scribe, put like the last half of verse 3 in the first half of verse 4, he put a description in there about what that guy was talking about in verse 7. This is what it reads, because um, my Bible left it in there. It says this, so I'll start reading at verse 3. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick and blind and lame and withered, Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after stirring up the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. So at some point after, because we have really early copies of the, of the book of John, like within like a generation or two of their actual writing, they had been circulated. We have a copy of the book of John from like 150, um, which John died in 90. It was like 60 years afterwards. Um, so we have really early copies of the book of John. And verse 4, the last half of verse 3 and verse 4 aren't in those early copies. They were added at some point later. So that's why most of your translations um, don't have them in there, because I don't believe that they were part of the text. But what they do is they tell us a little bit of the history. They were like a historical comment. They tell us a little bit of the history about what verse 7 was about, that there was this belief, and I believe it was just a myth. It, it, it doesn't really matter for the, as the story plays out if it was true or not. That there was this belief that an angel would come down, stir up the water in this pool, and that the first, first man in, or woman, would be healed of whatever their disease was. And that's what brought, we'll see this in a minute, that's what brought this man to the well, was this hope that if he could be the first guy into the water, he would be healed. Again, it's. I believe it was probably just a myth, um, uh, if it was true. It, it if that truly did happen, like that the angel did, did stir it up, um, it's, it's kind of incidental to our story because the one that truly heals showed up on the scene and healed the guy. But I wanted just to clear that up ahead of time because, because we can have complete rela- re- re- like confidence in the Scriptures because we have such early copies and because of just the way things translated over the years. Sometimes things like that got introduced, but we have scholars that sort those things out, and that's why most of your translations don't have verse 4. If you have questions about that, happy to talk about that. Steve, this isn't sarcasm, I'm giving you my real email, steve at creeksidemac.com. So feel free just to just to uh, email me and I'll, I'll try to answer some of your questions around that. So all that to say, as I read, I'm going to skip um, that last half of verse three and verse four and just go right from three to five like most of your translations do. So that being said, please stand with us as we read God's word. <laughs> This is God's word for his church. I'll, I'll, I'll begin reading through verse 8. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, arise, take up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus Christ who has the power to overcome sickness and disease and to bring healing. And Father, I just ask that um, you would work this morning, that you would open our hearts to understand your word, that you would bring us life through it, that we would experience healing in our innermost being, and that we would just worship you um, in spirit and in truth this morning and as we go about our week. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we start off in verse 5, you know, there's these, there's these two little statements that, Jesus, that John tells us. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. If you remember, Jesus was living in Galilee because, like, the Jews in Jerusalem didn't like him, and it, there was unnecessary conflict whenever he was in Jerusalem. But the law commanded that at these different feast times, like, that people would go up and worship in Jerusalem. So Jesus, in accordance with the law was going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And we're not told which feast it is, because I don't think it relates to this story. Other times it does. But he went up to Jerusalem. So, you know, if, if you've been with us in, the, in our study of the book of John, when you get to this, he went up to Jerusalem, it should kind of have this sense of like, dun, dun, dun. Like, things are going to go poorly at some point in this story. Because every time Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders of the day are, are going to have some issue with him, and it's going to cause some problem, and, and we'll find out that that happens in our story later on. But John quickly moves past that, and he takes us to verse 2, and he says, "And Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there's a pool, which is, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, which means the house of outpouring, or the house of grace and mercy, having five porticos. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick blind, lame, and withered. Now, I want you to capture this picture because I think John wants us to sense this. He, he first talks about this pool in the pool of Bethesda, and it says that there was five porticos in it. And, and um, a lot of like, people, like scholars, before they did the archaeology of this, were like, mm, I'm not really sure John knew what he was talking about there. Maybe he's using porticos as like, figuratively to represent something else because nobody's building a, a pentagonal shape a uh, pool in Jerusalem. That just didn't happen back then. And in fact, like, so the word portico or some of your translations read colonnades, basically what they are, and you, if you think about ancient, like, Greek and Roman architecture, they would, there were these big covered porches that were held up by columns. And so around this pool, allegedly, there was, like, these five, like, big covered, covered areas. And it says, and it's a big area, there's five of them, and it says, and in these lay a multitude of those who were sick and blind and lame and withered. A multitude. You know, the, I, they've actually found this site and they've excavated it. And there's like a rendition. I think I have it up in there on the slide. This is, a, this is the area of the pool of Bethesda. Back in, I think at this time in Jesus' life, it was just outside the city walls. It was later enclosed in the city walls. But it's basically a rectangle. It's more like a trapezoid shape. Um... And so each of the four sides of the rectangle represented four of the porticos, And then it was divided in the middle. It was divided by two pools, and there was, like, a portico in the middle of the two pools. And so as they excavated, they realized, like, oh, John actually did know what he was talking about. Maybe he had actually been there and seen it. But it's this big area. That's the, that's the point that I want us to see. It's, a, it's not just, like, a little hot tub. I've seen some like artist renditions of this where there's just like a, a pool that's about maybe the size of the center section and there's like a half dozen like sick and lame people lying around and there's a bunch of healthy people walking around and Jesus is kind of doing whatever Jesus does and just stumbles upon one of these like half dozen sick and lame people and heals him. It's not the picture. The picture is this is a big area. And it says there is a multitude. There's a multitude. This place is jam-packed, filled with, what does it say? The, the sick, the blind, the lame, and the withered. This place is jam-packed full of these people because they had this hope that maybe this water was going to stir, and maybe if it stirred, maybe I could be the first guy in, and maybe if I was the first one in, I could experience healing, healing. And so this hope for them just brought, like, just brought like, the, this, this mass of human desperation jammed into this space. It was a multitude. The, the Sheep Gate lies on the east side of Jerusalem, so Jesus coming in from Galilee probably would have gone past this, but he didn't have to stop in. Because you think you're coming up to Jerusalem for a festival. He's on vacation. It's spring break. He's heading over to the coast. The last thing he wants, the last place anybody wants to go, is this place that's jam-packed, full of the sick, the, bl- the blind, the lame, and the withered. Is that what they? You know, I remember when I was a kid. We lived in Taiwan for six months, and Taiwan back then was still pretty developing. It had open sewers, and and um, and I remember at one point in time we were kind of walking on this overpass, and. I was still adjusting just to the smell of, like, open sewers when it's hot out. Like, these, if you haven't ever seen them, they're just, like, these big canals where all the sewage runs through, you know. And and um, walking across this overpass, and there was this whole group of, like, people that fit this description, sick and blind and lame and withered, that were there begging. And I was sixth grade, so I was, like, little. I'm, like, down there, like, right at their level. And it was pretty impactful for me, like, because that's the first time I remember, like, I grew up in Corvallis, Cravalos is a pretty nice community. To really be impacted with like human misery and suffering and like people that are just like completely destitute and desperate, like living only off of the like benevolence of other people around them. That's the picture here. These people are desperate and they're desperate for this outside chance at this well. And, it, and it's filled with him, and it's into that mess of, like, suffering, like, sick, and, like, mourning humanity. I just can't even imagine what it would have been like, because, like, think about it in the time before, like, sanitation, the time before modern medicine, the time before, like, uh, you know, any of that. And Jesus chooses to walk in there. You know, the, the Son of God walks into this writhing mass of suffering humanity it 's pretty significant, and while he 's there, look what happens verse five and a certain man was there who had been thirty eight years in his sickness we don 't know exactly people like mostly assume that he was lame or paralyzed because it talks about him struggling to get into the water, but we don 't really know for sure, but we know one thing we do know is that he was there, he had been sick for 38 years. Whatever this hope of this water was, for 38 years, they've been letting him down. And he had been there suffering for 38 years. And then verse 6, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, like, it's pretty significant. Jesus, out of all the people there, for whatever reason, Jesus saw this guy. Jesus already knew everything about him and how long he'd been suffering, and he asked this strange question: "Do you wish to get well?" You know, and it's a perplexing question to me. That the answer seems kind of obvious. Jesus, son of God, like. But I think what Jesus is doing is he's exposing like the guy's like kind of like emotional state because look at how the guy responds. The sick man answered him, "Sir." I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but when I am coming, another steps down before me. He's like, it doesn't even matter what I desire. If I desire to get better, who cares? Because I, I, I can't get into the pool myself. And as I'm crawling there, and everybody else is like crawling to get into the pool, I'm always just a second too late. Like, he is hopeless. He'd been there for 30 eight years he was helpless like there's no one to help him he's isolated he's alone he had lost all hope he doesn't even it doesn't he's like, it's like his answer is like it doesn't even matter what i desire because this hope has always eluded me just such a tragic kind of picture as we get into this this scene with jesus and then Jesus says something just simple to him. Verse 8, arise, take up your pallet, and walk. Just three commands. Basically this, get up, get your stuff, and get out of here, right? Like, And, and so this guy, like, the, we're going to find out later in the story, the guy doesn't even know who Jesus is. Jesus just walks into this like suffering mass of humanity. He, he identifies one guy. He exposes that guy's hopelessness, helplessness, and isolation. And he says, get up and get out of here. And it says the guy instantly got up, was made well, and took up his, his bed and started walking. Jesus is the one who heals. And it's interesting. like This guy didn't come to Jesus in faith. This guy didn't even know who Jesus was. This guy didn't even seem to show much gratitude. Jesus just says, get up and take your stuff and go. And the guy does. And he gets healed. Jesus is the one that heals. And you know, before we go on, the story's going to keep, keep building. I just want to go back to that question that Jesus asked him. Because I think it's a question that we probably all need to ask ourselves. Like, do you wish to get well? Do you wish to get well? Some of you here have never, like, even tasted of the life that Christ has for you. You hear these promises that Jesus gives life and forgiveness and, and hope and peace, and, and yet you're like, really? Like, some guy that lived 2,000 years ago? But the question is, do you wish to get well? And the point so far in the story, and it's going to keep building, is that if you do, Listen to Jesus, because Jesus has the power to make you well. The second part of the question, I think, is important for us, like, because a lot of you here have placed your faith in Christ, have experienced it, tasted of the, the life that he has to offer. But then I think a lot of us, we just kind of plateau off, right? There's areas in our life where the gospel and Christ's work hasn't really pressed into yet. And maybe there are areas in your life where you have struggled for 38 years, you have suffered under the guilt of sin or you've, got, you've suffered under the same like kind of like sin or character issue or problem or whatever. And Jesus' response is, the, second, the question anyway, is the same, I think, to all of us. Do you wish to get well or have we, like this guy at the well, just lost our hope? It kind of doesn't matter what I desire anymore, right? Like I've tried it over and over and over again. And it never seems to matter. The point of our story is, is that Jesus is the one that makes well, and it's in, it's in following and pursuing Him that, that we can have life. And if if that's you at any level, you know, don't, don't fall for the myths of this world. I think that that stirring of the water thing it was just a myth that was, like, like, seducing everybody there. But our world is going to say, like, hey, there isn't substantial healing in Christ. You just need to, like... Instead, the thing that you're going to find life in is just, like, expressing yourself in all of your authenticity and, and, and whatever, right? And if you can just be, like, true to yourself, then you'll experience life. That's not what... This guy was true to himself. He was tired of being sick. He was tired of, like, his body breaking down. He had given up hope. But that's not where life is found. Like, do you wish to get well, and do you believe that in Jesus there is substantial healing? And I'm not just talking about physical healing. The story's going to take us away from the physical healing. He's talking about healing, that, like the deepest part of who we are. You know, if you're struggling with whatever it struggles, that there is substantial healing to be found in Jesus as we follow him, and there will be complete healing on that day when we ultimately see him face to face. Don't don't, don't become like this guy and just because like the, what the world's myths are about whatever you're going to find life in haven't like delivered that there isn't life in Jesus. If you wish to get well, like listen to him. That's what this guy did. And he began to walk. And it brings us to our second point though, like Jesus is already at work, always at work. And let me start reading at like this. Let me start reading at verse 9. It says, and immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Dun, 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 right? (laughs) Therefore, the Jews were saying to him, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, take up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your pallet and walk? But he who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. So here is this, like this kind of ridiculous thing that starts to unfold: is this guy is carrying his bed, he's carrying his bed through town, and of course, like the religiously elite people of the day are like, "Dude, you're breaking the law. You're carrying your bed. It's the Sabbath day. Today's supposed to be your day of rest." And you're not allowed to carry stuff on your day of rest. You should probably go back into that like, place where you were and just lay back down. <laughs> you know, the reality is, is that God in his word had like modeled for us in Genesis. He had commanded it to us that out of his goodness and grace to us, he had, he had told his people to honor a day of rest. It was part of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And the whole point is, is that God wanted to teach us that you can't get what's best in life simply by just working all the time in fact maybe you need to realize like life comes from me and you just need to rest and remind yourself of that looking towards the ultimate rest that we find in Jesus who worked for us so that we could like be saved apart from our works that's what Hebrews chapter 4 teaches us like the Sabbath was meant to be this gracious day to tell people like hey you're not going to find life in all the things that you find it in. Find it in, in God and rest in Him. And yet the, the Jews, because of their religious like obsessions, even their rest became work. In fact, they had like 38 categories of work. You weren't allowed to, you weren't allowed to uh like do all the any of these 38 categories. Do you guys know that even on your ovens today, there's like a Sabbath mode on your oven? Yeah, like, go get your owner's manual out. You can program your oven on Saturday, or on Friday so you don't have to turn it on on Saturday so you can cook your casserole, right? It's crazy sauce, like, to me. <laughs> Apparently, pushing buttons on your stove counts as work. And the Jews in that day were the same way. Like, and look what Jesus does. Verse thirteen, or verse fourteen. And afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. It's interesting. This man who had been healed, not knowing it was Jesus has healed him. Where does he go? He goes to the temple. Like at some point, like he acknowledges, like, oh, like I need to worship God because of what's happened to me. And Jesus finds him there in the temple, and he says, "Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing." worse, may befall you. So it's interesting what Jesus does is he comes up to this guy and he's like, hey, you've been made well. You're here in the temple, like this desire to worship. But then Jesus gives him a warning, don't sin anymore, lest something worse befall you. Now I want to bring some clarity to that because a lot of us kind of think, well, maybe Jesus believes in karma, right? And like, and that there's this like one-to-one cause and effect, like if you sin, then something bad's going to happen to you, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about. That's not what he's talking about. Sometimes, it's, this is true, sometimes our personal individual sin does result directly in our sickness. Like we, when Grant was here and, first, and he was teaching out of 1 Corinthians 11, uh, it says that because of you guys taking communion when you're in disunity with brothers and sisters, some of you are sick. Sometimes that's true. So you guys are probably out there like, well, like Steve had COVID, right? But most of the times it's not that direct of a cause and effect. In fact, uh, but the the reality is, is indirectly it is, like this world lies under the power of sin. It lies under sin's curse. It's fallen over this world like a shroud and woven within the fabric of that shroud is the reality of sickness and death that one day we are all going to face unless Jesus returns and so indirectly it's true that possibly like that that all sickness is a result of like the power of sin over this world and what Jesus is telling this guy and and maybe it is a lot of people think that that Jesus words here are indicating that his paralysis or whatever his sickness was was a direct result of his sin in fact, they they'll look back at the fact that the guy never said thank you, like back in you know the first section we were here. Immediately after this, he goes and tattles on Jesus and tells them that it was, tells the Jews it was Jesus. And some people will look at that and say like, "Oh, this guy is completely unworthy of this miracle." He he. Uh, he, he, he was suffering kind of like righteousness under his sin. And I don't, I don't know if that's true or not. I, I kind of don't think so, just because the, I think the emphasis is just on everybody else, not so much on the guy. And the fact that the guy was worshiping there says something good about the guy. But the reality is this, even if he was, it just highlights the reality that Jesus heals the completely undeserving and helpless and hopeless and what he's telling this guy is like, hey, I have healed you. I have, I have released you from the suffering that's caused by sin, Either, whether it's personal or like this power that lies over this world. Don't keep sinning anymore so that you don't keep suffering under the, the consequences of that sin or of sin, big S sin. Big S. That sounds bad, doesn't it? Sorry, that one just slipped out. You guys are the worst. Um, what Jesus is telling him is, hey, I sought you out. I healed you. I, I'm here with you in your worship. But don't fall, like, just back into, like, the sinful ways under the rule. Don't, don't continue to live under sin's power because the only thing that comes from sin's power is suffering no matter how it's no matter how like you're seduced into it like sin always leads to suffering and death and Jesus is like hey you've been set free don't go down that path anymore like if you have true righteousness and true like if you're truly worshiping it's going to transform your life so that you're not the same person that that you were before follow me, don't live under sin or its curse so that you don't have to keep suffering unnecessarily. After that conversation, verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Thanks, guy. Um, and for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. He's making this point, and it's easy for us to miss, like, um, but, he, but he says, he says that when the Jews like, start hassling him for breaking the Sabbath, he doesn't correct their view of the Sabbath. He doesn't be like, hey, you guys misunderstand the Sabbath. This is the way it's supposed to be. These are, you know, like... He doesn't do that. He corrects their view of who he is. He's like, Your point, you're missing the point altogether. It's not even about like the Sabbath, it's about me. And he makes this statement that's interesting My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. One of the things that was true about the Jews is that one of, because they were so obsessed with the Sabbath idea that they actually had theological debates about whether God kept the Sabbath or not. Because if God rested, They couldn't really conceive of a world where God wasn't doing his work of providence and his work of, like, superintending all things and his work of holding the universe together. So God must continue to work or else the universe would fall apart. But then God's breaking his own rule. And so they're in this, like, dilemma. It was, like, one of the theological debates of the day. And, in fact, but their own rules, like, their own rules, uh, like, got, got off the hook, fortunately. Because they, they made, you know, about work, they had kind of defined work as that you, you can't carry something. If you were carrying something from one domain to another, that would be considered work. So, for example, I could pick up my chair, scoot it away from the dinner table, and sit down, and that wouldn't be work because I'm operating within my same home. But I couldn't pick up my chair and go to your house for dinner because then that would be work because I'm carrying it from one domain to the other. And they also had this rule that you weren't allowed to lift something higher than your stature. You couldn't lift it over your head. And so, uh, because if like lifting it to your mouth, for example, would probably be okay, but lifting it over your head—that's just unnecessary. <laughs> and then their theologians kind of reasoned, and they said to themselves, "Well, like God's domain is the entire universe, and so anything that God does is keeping inside His house, so to speak. And so He doesn't move anything from one domain to the other because everything is His domain. And." God is higher than all things, and so he can't lift anything higher than himself, so God's off the hook, he doesn't break the sabbath, right like <laughs> I, it, I, it sounds crazy, but I'm not making this up like that's too great to make up, right like but when Jesus says, "My Father is working until now, and I myself am working," he's saying. God who fills all things, who superintends all things. He is my Father. There is a uniqueness in Jesus' relationship with the Father. He doesn't say our Father. He says mine. My Father is working, and I'm working. Like, God and I are in this thing together. And so it's okay for me to break the Sabbath, because the Father breaks the Sabbath. So you guys shouldn't worry about it. And then here, what do you see? Verse eighteen for this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. you know there's this notion today, which comes from like not reading the Bible, that Jesus never claimed to be God all through John we're going to see it that Jesus over and over and over again claims to be God, and what he's saying is that he and the Father are unified in this work um, and that the, the, the work of the, his work is the work of the Father. But it's interesting because verse 18 tells us that in response to that, Jesus, they want to kill him, right? So Jesus tells them this, and they're like, no, instead we're going to kill you. And, um, and then Jesus responds to them. In fact, it says he answers them in verse 19. Jesus therefore answered them, and it's interesting. He doesn't like back off of what he just said. In fact, he doubles down on what he just said and develops this notion of, of uh, that that he and the father are unified and that he's the one that they should be worshiping. He's the one that deserves all glory and that brings us to our third point this morning. And and there's going to be this series of parallels that Jesus draws between him and the father and there's like four of them that kind of all lead to a point that Jesus is the one that deserves all honor. Look what he says in verse 19. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them. This is an ongoing like point of his teaching. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in a like manner. The first thing that Jesus says to these guys who, who want to kill him because he's God is like, Hey, wait, like truly, truly, like listen to this. It's really important. I only do what I see the father doing. And in fact, I do exactly what the father does. Like, Jesus is saying, like, there is, there is no, that he and the Father's work are completely synchronized, completely in concert, and, and he operates in complete dependence upon the Father. He says, I only do what I see the Father doing. And I do the same things in, lo, in like manner, that he is this perfect reflection of, of the Father. Think about this for a second. This is the second time it says that Jesus saw. You know, when Jesus stepped into the pool of Bethesda with all of those suffering people around him, it says that he saw the man. And here Jesus says, kind of in response to that whole story, he says, and I also see the Father, and I do exactly what I see the Father doing, Like, Jesus is the one that stood in the gap, like stood in the mess of suffering humanity, and he's the one that has all of his eyes on the Father and his eyes on us at the same time, and he does exactly what the Father wants to have done. Like, he's the one that mediates God's word to us or God's work to us so that what Jesus does is what the Father is doing. You guys see that? It's this beautiful picture where this suffering guy who is healed by Jesus and called to like a transformed life by him in seeing Jesus is ultimately seeing who? The Father. And the Father in his work is working through the Son to bring life to this guy. Like Jesus is the one that mediates the work of the Father. This is really important for us because oftentimes we think that Jesus and the Father are somehow at odds. Even we... I mean, and there's these great deep theological truths. We sung about it today, like, when I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. That's a true, like, absolutely true statement, that, that... like, our sin has caused, like, the disfavor of God to fall upon us, and Christ stood in our place and, and absorbed that. But sometimes we, like, look at that, and we think that somehow, like, the work of the Father and the work of the Son are different, and that they're, and that they're opposed to each other. And what Jesus is saying here is, no, he does exactly what the Father does. God the Father is reaching out to, like, broken, sick and dying humanity and bringing them healing and life, and the sun is the perfect reflection of that. in fact, we see that in john one in john 's opening he says this for John one seventeen and eighteen for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that's Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him or he has made him known. Jesus is the one that reveals to us who the Father is because he does exactly what the Father does. He goes on. That's the first of those parallel statements. The second one, verse 24, the Father loves the Son And shows him all things that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. You know, this the fact that Jesus is operating in perfect like synchronization with the Father isn't because like Jesus is somehow inferior, isn't because Jesus is is being demeaned by the Father, isn't because Jesus is being bossed around by the Father. It's because there is this relationship of love between the Father and Son. Like the Father loves. The Son. There's this love relationship between the two of them so that the Father reveals everything that he's doing to the Son. And the Son does it. Like it's God, God's love is being demonstrated through the work of Christ. And then he says this, and he's going to show him greater works than these, that whoever see them will marvel. When we see the, the work of the Father through the Son, as the Son intercedes for us in the midst, in the midst of broken humanity... It says, you should marvel. You should be brought to like amazement. And then he tells us why. This is the third one, verse 21. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whoever he wishes. This is where we can see that this picture of this, this guy in this at the pool of Bethesda is this picture of what God's doing in humanity. He says, God is the one who gives life. God is the one who raises the dead. And guess what? So am I. I can give life to whoever I wish, Jesus claims. He's the one that gives life. And when, So when verse, verse 20 tells us that we should marvel, we should marvel over the resurrection, that God is the one who raises the dead and gives life to all things. God is the one who has power over the ultimate consequence of sin, which is death. God is the one who raises the dead. And Jesus is able to give that life to whoever he wishes. You know, in two weeks, we're going to be celebrating Easter, the resurrection. We're going to be celebrating the reality of this. The greater thing that that God's going to show us through the sun that's going to cause us to marvel is the fact that he has the ability to raise the dead. So what John's telling us here what Jesus is telling us here is that this resurrection that we're going to witness that this that this man being raised up from his pallet was just a foreshadowing of this resurrection should cause you to marvel and be amazed. So if you if you're approaching this Easter and you're kind of like, yeah, it's Easter and there's not a sense of amazement or marveling that leads you to this worship and transformed life that Jesus is talking about, then you're probably doing it wrong. You've probably taken your eyes off of like the reality of, like, of the kind of misery of humanity that was pictured at the pool from which we all are called out of. Probably have taken your eyes off of the, the reality that Jesus is the one who has power over the, the ultimate like, kind of sting of sin, which is death itself. If you're not amazed, if it doesn't stir your heart to worship and obedience and devotion, you're probably missing the point. In fact, that's where Jesus goes with it. Verse 27, there's one more for. For not even the Father judges anyone, or verse 22, I mean. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So here we have actually a little bit of contrast. It's not that they're doing the same things. It's that God has actually delegated his ability to judge the world, and he has given that ability to Jesus himself. This one who has the ability to give life to whoever he wishes is the one who's going to return one day and bring judgment upon this world. Jesus has authority to judge. In fact, the Apostles' Creed... I have just one section of the Apostles' Creed, the section about Jesus up on the screen. But the Apostles' Creed was, um, the earliest occasion I think we have of it is like 150, um, which would have been like 60 years after the death of the last apostles. And it was already in kind of like circulation by then, at least a version of it. It's, It's transformed a little bit over the centuries. That's why it's called the Apostles' Creed, because it was likely spoken by the church since the beginning when the apostles were there. But here's what the Apostles' Creed says about Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Like, Jesus is saying that my work and the work of the Father is so like closely tied together. When you see me, you see the Father. The Father's the one that gives life. I'm the one that gives life. I'm the one that ultimately will come and bring judgment on this world. And then there's a reason. All of this is building up to this reason in verse 23. In order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What Jesus is saying to the Jews who wanted to kill him because the, because he was claiming to be God says, Guess what? Because of the, the unity between me and the Father, because we're we're always doing the same thing, we're doing it in the same way, he's given me like authority over like death itself. He's given me the ability to judge. You should worship me like you worship the Father. in order that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. And if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father who sent him. Like Jesus coming into this world, humbling himself to the point of death so that death could be overthrown forever, so that it could be proven that he has authority over death itself is so that we would honor the son even as we honor the father. This guy who came from worse to like was healed out of this like mess of suffering humanity, was brought to worship and then called by Christ to like live this life of obedience. It's just this picture of, of who we are. If you're a Christian, you've been, like, raised up out of the pool of Bethesda. Whatever, like, sickness or suffering or witheredness or blindness you had, like, God's speaking healing into that. He's calling you to worship. He's calling you to this transformed life. And he's calling you to honor the Son, like, to praise him. You know, Aaron, why don't you come forward to close us? You know, Jude, the, the, uh, in the book of Jude, the last two verses of Jude, uh, he writes this as he closes his letter. He says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And this work of Jesus to bring healing that's continually going on even today that brings him honor should stir our hearts so that all glory, honor, majesty, dominion, and authority belong to him. And if there's anything in your life that you're holding back from him, if any like any unwillingness in your heart to submit areas of your life or let him press into those, you're only clinging to what's going to bring suffering and death because he's the one that has authority to give life. So, Aaron, why don't you close us, and then I'll close us in prayer. You know, this section ends in verse 24 with Jesus saying these words, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has has passed out of death into life. Jesus is the one who Shows the work of the Father. He's the one that intercedes for us, who brings the life of of the resurrection of the dead. Who brings eternal life. It's whoever hears my word and believes Him has sent me has eternal life. So, Creekside, if you're if whoever's here, if if you've never placed your faith in Christ, just know that Jesus is promising life to you. Don't stay laying by the pool. And for, for those of us that have experienced that life, don't go back. Uh, it was like gross, like that pool area, right? <laughs> and I say that in all pastoral wisdom, right? And like, don't go back. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for ultimately for the work of Jesus Christ who perfectly mirrors your work to us, who, who has authority over death and sickness and who has the ability to speak into those areas of our brokenness and our witheredness and, and bring healing. And So Father, I just ask if there's anyone here that has never experienced that, that you would, that you would speak to them right now today to get up and get their stuff and get going um, and follow you. And that you would um, stir our own hearts to greater hope and faith. That that you want to bring healing to those areas of life that that are broken. So, we just look to your son. We we give him all our honor. I just ask that you would help us to live a life of worship for him um, today and and this week as we go back to work and to our jobs and school and taking care of our kids and whatever else like that you call us to this week. That we would that we would honor. The Son, like we honor the Father, like we should honor You, um, and that we would genuinely worship You. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.